Good morning. Our scripture passage this morning comes from the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 7. I'll begin in verse 2. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For I see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. This is the word of God. Okay, we are studying the doctrines of peace. We are studying what the Bible says, what Christianity claims about reconciling our conflicts. The doctrines of peace for our personal conflicts and the doctrines of peace for navigating these divisive, polarized days in which we are all living. And the last three weeks, we've, we've talked about glorifying God, even in our conflicts. We've talked about removing the logs out of our own eyes, figuratively speaking. And as we remove the logs from our own eyes, we then confess the idols in our hearts that those logs in our eyes have revealed to us and to other people. And once again, we're back with the Corinthians. We started a few weeks ago in 1 Corinthians. We're reading 2 Corinthians chapter 7 today because, as I said before, we are the Corinthians. We are the Corinthians. We are a new church. We live in a society that praises and, and worships upward mobility, and all of our ancestors were either immigrants or slaves. We are the Corinthians. And now, this is actually, so 2 Corinthians is actually Paul's 
third letter to the church in Corinth. And that church had ongoing conflicts, divisions, all sorts of problems. But in one area, they had actually improved. He heard about, from his friend Titus, he heard about an area that uh, regard, uh, regarded a big mess, a scandal, this is a mess of a situation, and they got it right, and they fixed it. And he was so excited and proud of them and filled with, with joy and comfort that he, he, he's talking about that situation. You've done something well. And so he says in verse 9 of 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and today I'm only going to focus on verses 9 and 10. I asked Johanna to read most of the chapter so that you get a bigger context for what was going on. But Paul says to them in verse 9, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief. Paul was happy because their repentance as a church was real. Now, this is peacemaking and conflict resolution that we're talking about, which requires self-awareness in each of us. If you are even a bit self-aware, meaning if you are a bit honest with yourself, you probably have some habit or, or some attitude, or some problem in your life, there's some problem with you that you absolutely hate, but you can't quit it. You know it's wrong, you feel it's wrong, you see how it affects you, you see how it affects other people. You hate it, but you can't quit. Maybe you've even confessed it. Maybe you've told people about it. Maybe you've asked for help. Maybe you've asked somebody to hold you accountable to the situation. Maybe you've read about that problem in that situation. Maybe you've prayed about it and asked God to take it away or do something about it. But you realize that change hasn't come. Whatever trust you have broken with others is still broken. And you still feel terrible about this one thing or maybe this one relationship. Well, real repentance... Real repentance is the difference between being a good person and being a new person. This is the Christian understanding of repentance. Now, maybe you've heard the word repent or repentance. Uh, I, I don't know what, what comes to your mind when you think of that. I don't know if, you know, maybe you think of somebody on a street corner with a bright red sign that says, you're going to hell, repent for the kingdom of God. I don't know what you think of but maybe you've heard repent, repentance in church environments or in religious circles. I don't know. We're going to talk about what repentance means in the Bible. We're also going to talk about what repentance means for us in our lives. We're going to talk about what repentance has to do with our conflicts. Because it has everything to do with our conflicts. It has everything to do with whether or not we resolve our conflicts. So we're going to talk about repentance in the Bible, repentance in our lives, and repentance in our conflicts. All right, so buckle up. Now, repentance in the Bible really is, it's, it's two complementary ideas that fit well together to form a whole. Repentance has a connotation in the Old Testament and a connotation in the New Testament. They're different, but when you put them together, it's beautiful. And it all, it all makes sense. So let's start with the Old Testament. So there's this, there's this ancient Hebrew word from the Old Testament, and the word is shuv. And it simply meant to turn. 
or to turn around or to return. So for example, the prophet Isaiah, chapter 30, he says in returning, one English translation just says in repentance. But in returning and rest, you shall be saved, God told ancient Israel. Now a good example of what this means is David, King David, we looked at Psalm 51 this past summer and how David at one point in, in his reign, I mean, screwed up royally, pun intended. I mean, he messed up in every possible way. And, and David said to God, this is what he asked God for in the middle of Psalm 51. He said, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. See, David understood that he needed more than the cessation of bad behavior. He needed more than an arrestment of what he was doing wrong. For David, he realized this has got to be something more than I just need to stop doing this thing that has deeply hurt my family and the nation and made me feel like garbage. David understood he needed a renewed heart. Look at those words, right? Restore unto me, he went on to say later, the joy of your salvation, God. David understood he needed a new direction. He needed to turn around and do a 180-degree turn and move in a completely different direction back towards God, as Avery showed the kids earlier today. So that sense of turning in the Hebrew Scriptures in the Old Testament was you're going one way away from God, and now you do a 180, and you're moving back towards God. That's Old Testament repentance, a new direction, turning around. But watch this. In the New Testament, which was written in an ancient Greek tongue, there is this word for repentance, and it was metanoia. It was a compound word. It was just two words put together. It was the word, the preposition after, and basically the verb to know, to understand. So you put those two ideas together, after and knowledge, after and understanding, after knowing, after knowledge. And that doesn't make much sense to us. So let's put it this way. It means changing your mind. Repentance in the New Testament meant a change of mind. And for the ancients, your mind was not just like, you know, multiplying and subtraction and division. Your mind was your heart. It was your soul. Repentance means a change of mind, a heart change, a total inward renovation. And that's, John the Baptist used this word. Jesus used this word. And all the apostles who wrote the New Testament used this word again and again, and it comes up here in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 when he says to his friends, you repented. You've had a change of mind that produced results. And the concept is vividly portrayed in another place that Paul wrote to the church in Rome. He said to them, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The word transformed there is metamorphosis, like a caterpillar turning into a butterfly. Metamorphosis, caterpillar to butterfly, the same person, but a total transformation of the same person. How is that possible? It's still you, but it's a total transformation. How does that happen? Paul says, by the renewing of your mind. That's repentance. The Protestant reformer John Calvin wrote about repentance that it's a real conversion of our life. You see how it's not just a cessation of that one creepy thing you do. 
that one annoying thing you say to that person again and again. No, he says it's a real, it's a conversion of our life unto God, proceeding from sincere and serious fear of God, that means respect for God, and consisting in the mortification, that means killing, the mortification of our flesh and the old man, meaning the old you, and the quickening of the spirit, meaning the spirit of God is moving in you, it's resuscitating you. Now let's put all of that into English, like our English. I think a good way of summarizing everything the theologians said and everything you see about repentance in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, is to say repentance is a change of heart and thinking produced by personal grief for how your sin offends God and its impact on other people. Followed by, we're not done, followed by a change of direction in your attitude in your words, and in your actions. And we can boil that down even more simply to saying that according to the Bible, repentance is new thinking that produces changed living. Now you may be thinking, but how do I know I'm repenting? How do I know I'm doing it? How do I know they are doing it? How do I know she's changing? How do I know he's changing? I need proof. I need to see some movement, right? Well, that's where this is all going. How do we know we're actually repenting according to this? A new way of thinking that leads to a new way of living. Now, here's the thing. Here's, a, here's what repentance has to look like in our lives if you are a follower of Jesus. Repentance in your life requires both the influence of God upon you and the encouragement of others for you. The influence of God and the encouragement of one another. That's what we need to repent. Look at verse 10. He says to them, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Now, when he says godly grief, he means a sorrow for what you've done, but that sorrow, that sadness for what you've done It comes from God having an impact on you. The sorrow for what you've done actually comes from the Spirit of God. It comes from a sense of sadness and remorse that God pushes into you. But he says more than that. It's interesting. He uses this phrase, without regret, seems kind of odd at first, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. He means without remorse. He means you don't have any guilt. You had guilt, but as you repent, you don't have remorse anymore. It's not that you don't care that what you did was really harmful and hurtful and destructive or dysfunctional. It means you are not living with the guilt of it. How is that even possible? Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, without remorse, without having to live with the weight of guilt because of what you've done or thought or said. The evidence of God's influence upon you is this sincere sorrow that leads to freedom, and here's how you can have freedom and not live in guilt and always feel guilty because you know that God has forgiven you. 
That's where the freedom comes from. That's where the lack of guilt comes from, even though you've done it, even though you've said it, even though all the dominoes fell over because you tapped the first one. Real repentance produces in you a sense of liberation that you are not being held accountable in God's eyes for that sin, but he has rather forgiven you, even if the consequences, like for King David, are very real, and you are living through the consequences, maybe for a day or a week, or maybe for the rest of your life. And you can yet live without guilt and have the sense of freedom because God has actually forgiven the very thing you've done that is still making a mess of things in real time and space. Like Paul, this is the other important thing. Real repentance releases you from the feeling of guilt, but the other thing that happens is, watch what Paul does. Paul is actually excited about what the Corinthians have done. He's excited and he's comforted because he's seen real repentance in them. And that's what happens. Like Paul, we actually experience joy as a church, and we experience comfort as Christians when we witness, when we see one another change. Think about athletes. So, so, all right, it's football season now. What do they do when they get a touchdown? They go crazy. They do their little dances. They fist pump one another. They get each other all pumped up. Why? Because they're, they're winning. Something amazing just happened, right? They're pumping one another up. They're encouraging one another as teammates. Now, but here's the thing. So some athletes are really just glory. Like when they do the victory dance in the end zone, they're, they're like... They're celebrating themselves. The, what happens with, with Christians is when, when we encourage one another, we're really celebrating what God is doing in a person. That's what you Paul is in the end zone pumping the Corinthians up in a way that is glorifying. He's like, look at what God is doing in you. I am so comforted by this. I'm so relieved by this. And I'm filled with joy. I'm really excited. I'm really excited. He said, actually, the, uh, Hebrews chapter 10 says, let us consider how to, you've heard this, let us consider how to stir one another up toward love and good deeds. Let's think of how we can pump each other up as God brings about real change in each of us, which means we have to be involved in each other's lives. How else are we going to know that he's changing anybody? Right? So in a sense, repentance is a team effort. For Christians. God is doing it. It is God that is placing that heavenly sorrow upon us for what we've done and how we are living and our habits and our destructive impact on one another. But we give him the glory and encourage each other as we see it happen in our lives. It's a team effort. But he goes on to say in verse 10, this is the other type of sorrow. This is the other type of grief that he compares it to. He says worldly grief produces death. When he, when he says worldly grief, he means a sorrow, a sorrow in you that is produced by the world around you. Not a sorrow that comes from God. It's a sorrow that comes from the world. It's a sorrow that comes from seeing what you've done and feeling its impact in relationship to the people around you and what they think about you and what, who they tell you you are and what they tell you your priorities are. 
Godly grief comes from God. Worldly grief comes from everybody else and everything else. Think of a politician or a celebrity. You are sorry because you got caught. You are sorry that people know. You are sorry that you lose your office. You are sorry that you lose people's good favor. You are sorry that a million people stop following you on Twitter. You are sorry that you have lost intimacy with another person. You are sorry that you have lost somebody's ability to trust you. You don't like the consequences. That's worldly sorrow. That's worldly grief. You don't like the consequences. You don't, you don't like the impact it has on you. You're grieving because of how it hurts you, not how it hurts other people. That's worldly grief. When we only care about our behavior, what's happening on the outside, when we're worried about getting caught, getting called out, getting canceled, there's really no change. There's no change when that's what we're worried about because all of that is about fear. Getting caught, getting canceled, losing our rights, losing what we have and who we have. When we're afraid of that, when that produces change in us, it's, it's, it's an outward change. That's what Jesus said to the Pharisees. You all are like whitewashed tunes. You look pretty on the outside and you're like a dead rotting corpse on the inside because you're just worried about your behavior. You're worried about the impact that your reputation will have for your own sake. Worldly grief produces death because when you are driven by fear of being caught, when you are driven by moralism or legalism and having to do the right thing in the right way and making sure that others do the right thing in the right way, it's, there's no forgiveness. That's why worldly sorrow, Paul says, leads to death because it, there's no forgiveness in the equation. There's no hope that God forgives you, and there's certainly feel no, you feel no compulsion to forgive one another. Worldly grief is trying to be a good person without a changed heart. So practical advice for resolving conflict is pray for a godly sorrow. It's, it, now, this is very practical. We have to understand the difference between that godly sorrow and a worldly sorrow. We have to check ourselves and ask ourselves, why do I feel the way I feel right now? Am I embarrassed because I'm caught? Am I angry because they won't talk to me anymore and they won't give me the ice cream cone back? Am I angry because I'm sleeping on the couch tonight? Or am I broken because what I have done has offended my creator who created me and loves me. And what I have done and what I have said and the habits I have allowed to permeate my life in this environment where I live or this environment where I work has really hurt the people around me. Why are you sad? We have to check ourselves and ask that question. And we can ask Jesus for a godly sorrow for the logs in our eyes and for the idols in our hearts. If you don't know what that means, go back and listen to the last two weeks. Seek a godly sorrow. Pray for a godly sorrow for the logs in your eye and the idols in your heart. 
Godly grief is a sadness that you've offended God and you've hurt your neighbor. But it's also a humility. It's not just a sadness and that's the end of it. It's a humility. Here's here's the, the forward movement. Because if you're just sad, you just wallow in it. And you still feel guilty. Here's the forward movement. Godly grief is not just a sadness. It's a humility that lets others in. Godly grief is a a humility that lets others help and that specifically lets others help you see things differently. This is one of the scariest things you'll ever have to ask another human being that you know you've wronged or hurt. How have my words hurt you? When I say that, when I do that, again and again, as you keep pointing out to me, Instead of defending yourself, you ask the person, how does it make you feel when I do that? And you're thinking at this point, I don't need to, I can just change. I don't need to ask people that. Yes, you do. Because you only see it from your perspective. And that is not a changed mind. That is not a changed heart. Your heart changes as outside influence comes in and renovates it. Humility, sadness, and here's the thing. The kind of sadness and humility that allows you to open up and ask others, would you give me feedback, right? This is a relational feedback form on how you impact other people, especially the ones that seem to be ticked off at you. You ask them things like, how have my words or actions hurt you? Or you say to a person whom you trust and respect, would you please hold me accountable to the Bible, to God's word. You don't say, hold me accountable to your standards. Good luck, because their standards are probably not very good. Or hold me accountable to my own standards. Forget that. This isn't a weight loss program or a fitness program. You say, would you please hold me accountable to God's standards? And you may even have to say to a trained professional counselor or therapist sometimes, Would you counsel me and help me to begin to think differently about the situation, about that person, about the dynamics between the two of us, about how I am supposed to manage this cancel culture where I'm afraid to say or do anything and be called out on it or condemned for it? Help me figure this out. Sometimes it requires reading a book or getting involved in a small group, a community group, where you talk these things through together in a safe environment. That's all the hard work that real repentance requires of us. You doing nothing, just feeling bad, don't expect for real change. You're asking people to hold you accountable to God's word. You're asking for input. When I say this, when I do this, I know you're hurt, but help me, help me to understand how it hurts. And that's the hardest part, actually listening to what they say. That's hard. Reading a book on it, saying, you know what? Maybe it's time for me to get some counseling and get somebody else's perspective who's actually trained in teasing these things out of somebody in a helpful way. That's all the hard work that real repentance requires. And if you're doing even some of that, good for you. That's awesome. Imagine the Apostle Paul saying, I have so much joy and comfort that you are moving in a positive direction. 
True reconciliation is rare because real repentance is rare. We are prone, especially in like a very moralistic, churchy type culture, we are prone when we're in sin or when we're in a conflict or when we mess up, we're prone to emphasize confession, I did it, and accountability, help me stop doing it. And we even have entire groups that meet to confess and hold one another accountable. And if, but see, that alone is ineffective for actual change. Confession and accountability is only half of it. We've only called attention to our bad behavior and our shame. When we're just helping each other confess our sins and be accountable to one another, we're simply drawing attention to the bad behavior and the shame that we have because of it. And that sets you up for two horrible things. The first horrible thing is self-righteous pride when you do a good job and start behaving. Look at me. I've figured this out. What's wrong with them? They haven't. The other terrible thing it leads to is self-hate when you keep screwing up, when you don't see real change. And, and then you just have a bunch of religious people either hating themselves or being overinflated with themselves. And, that get, and there's just, we keep contributing to the division in our society when that's how we try to change. Our behavior and our living will never change until our minds change, until our hearts are overhauled by a God who is merciful to forgive. Forgiveness without regret, right? Salvation without regret. Repentance for our conflicts comes from a new way of thinking about God. It really comes down to the way we fight, the way we disagree, and how we deal with tension and conflict and even division and polarization has everything to do with what we believe about God. And that's really where repentance begins. We renovate what we think about God. What did Avery say to the kids earlier? God's kindness leads to repentance not his disapproval. Nobody changes because God disapproves of them. And if they do, it just looks like they've changed. As Jesus said to the Pharisees, it is an outward sense of righteousness. It is only the appearance of change. Unlike the rest of the world's religions, Christianity does not say, God will be kind to you if you repent. Repent and God will be kind to you. No, it actually is just the other way around. Christianity says, God is so kind. That's who he is. Therefore, repent. And the proof of that, the proof that God's kindness instigates is the catalyst for real repentance in you is that Jesus Christ, the only Son of God who is perfect and sinless, had no need to repent of anything, actually died on a Roman cross in the place of those who refuse to repent and cannot repent. And that's why Paul is able to say that real repentance leads to salvation without regret. Only Christianity offers forgiveness without the fear of retribution. 
Only Christianity allows you to have the freedom of guiltlessness to want to change for the right reasons. Where the reason you're changing is based on your love for him and your gratitude that he's forgiven you, not your fear of people. A God of law who demands that you behave will always produce fake change. Doesn't matter how good, how good it looks, it's fake change. Because you're clean on the outside and filthy on the inside. All of our righteousness, all of our righteous attempts to be good, the prophet Isaiah said, are like filthy rags in God's eyes. It's fake change. A God of grace, however, who forgives bad behavior because his son obeyed his law perfectly and became your substitute criminal on the cross, that alone produces real change in us. I think you need to change your mind about who God is if you expect to have progress in your conflicts. Change your mind about who God is. He is kind. Yes, he is just. And he handled that on the cross with Jesus. But he is abundantly kind. And my prayer is that we will let his kindness encourage us towards real change in our lives. I'll tell you what helps in a conflict more than almost anything when the other person sees that you really want to change. When you hold your ground and dig in your heels, all they see is that you're immovable and it's all on them. You want to give somebody a sense of hopelessness in a conflict. Act like you have nothing to learn, you have nothing to do to change, and you're not open to it. But a God who is kind and forgiving will blow you away by realizing in that forgiveness that you are free to actually change for the right reasons because you love him and because you really do care about the people around you. And the cool thing is we get to, we get to pump each other up and do, do this as a team together. Yeah, there are things that are inappropriate to discuss publicly or with more than one person or with more than those people who are a part of the solution and need to know, of course. But as we see real change in one another, we pump one another up. We encourage one another. We rejoice in each other. We find comfort in one another as a team. Repentance is a team sport. Real repentance is the difference between being a good person and being a new person. Are you a Christian? Do you believe that he has forgiven your sins on the cross and rose from the dead and that you will have eternal life through him? That you are reconciled to God? Well, then God is a kind God. And his kindness has been given directly to you. Live in repentance. Seek a godly sorrow for the logs in your eye that are causing conflicts and the idols in your heart that have power over you so that you cannot change those habits or that manner of speaking or that way of thinking. Let Jesus convince you that God is kind and the new thinking that the Bible calls repentance starts there with letting the kindness of God overhaul your heart. And for the next few weeks, I think we have three more, three more weeks, we're going to talk about forgiveness and what forgiveness looks like. We're going to talk about gentleness 
in our conflicts and what it looks like to help one another gently repent. And we're going to look at what it looks like to pursue peace with each other and to pursue peace with the community. Let's pray. Father, we, we are moved by your kindness. We are moved by the fact that our Savior Jesus was perfect and yet he took all of our guilt for our own sin and he dragged it onto the cross and was killed for it. Hallelujah, what a Savior. And we ask now that his power would impress upon us not only how just you are, but how kind you are, how loving and gracious. Would you please renovate our souls with the kindness of a Savior? And would you help us to extend that kindness to one another as we all wrestle with the things in our lives that, that require our ongoing change? Father, change our minds about things so that our actions will change in response. And Father, if anyone here, if I, if any of us have a wrong idea about you, do not understand you as Jesus explained you, as the Bible explains you, please help us to see in a new way and transform us. Amen.